Village Brass. Hasn't that been great music? Um, just a reminder, this evening at 7 o'clock, the Village Brass will be featured in our Drive-In Hope Vespers right out here in the courtyard area. And, uh, you know, what better thing for the 4th of July than to have great brass music? So we'll be looking forward to that. And that'll be the, actually the conclusion of our series of Drive-In Vespers. Kind of sad to see that come to the end, isn't it? But it's been good to get us together and uh, enjoy the concluding hour of the Sabbath together and uh, make contact with people, and it'll be a wonderful event again this evening. As we get started this morning, I would just like for us to begin with a word of prayer. So would you bow your heads with me, please? Thank you. Father, we thank you for the Sabbath day, for the beauty of the day. We thank you for the holiday season and the uh, opportunity it gives us to gather as friends and families. Pray that your spirit would be with us here as we ponder your word and reflect on your uh, on your spirits leading in our lives and, uh, and in the life of our nation and country. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the 4th of July. This is the day set aside as a holiday to celebrate our country. I did not ask to be born in America, but I'm glad I was. Both sets of my grandparents were immigrants. My father's parents came from Lithuania. They came as uneducated, illiterate peasants. My mother's parents were Germans who came from Odessa, in Russia. And they all came to America in search of safety and freedom and opportunity. Both sets of my grandparents settled on the prairies of eastern Montana, establishing homesteads and turning the sod into productive farmland. Their stories were very similar to the thousands of immigrant stories that have been told by many others' parents and grandparents. I was reading in the memoir of former British Prime Minister Tony Blair. He was a friend of a family who were immigrants to America. They were Jews from Europe who settled in New York. They struggled to live. The father died young, the mother lived on, and their son actually succeeded and became wealthy. And he used to offer his mother opportunities to travel outside of America, but she never did. Eventually, she died. When they went through her belongings, they found a little box. And they assumed it was a jewelry box in which she kept some of her valuables. There was no key to the box, so they had to drill it open. 
They wondered what precious jewel might be in it. They lifted the lid, and there was wrapping and, and more wrapping, and finally an envelope. Intrigued, they opened it. And in the envelope were her U.S. citizenship papers. Nothing more. That was her jewel, more precious to her than any other possession. That was what she treasured most. Indeed, we live in a wonderful country and we enjoy so much. We must never take for granted the, the greatness of our nation and the opportunities it provides for us and our families. Today, it seems appropriate to reflect on the Christian's approach to God and government church and state, politics and religion. We know that without government, we would have anarchy and chaos. For democracy and the freedom to speak our opinions, we are thankful. In some places in this world, government is not friendly toward Christianity. In other places, it fits hand in glove. But that, too, can be dangerous if you belong to a religious minority. In the Bible, we can read where Jesus was once drawn into a query about government. And from that encounter, we can discern at least three principles about our relationship with government and our duty as citizens. And if you have your Bible, you can open to Mark chapter 12, and we find there a passage from which I'd like to make some uh, comments today. Mark 12, beginning at verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And then they have a question for him. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asks. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. In context, this paragraph follows immediately after Jesus has overturned the tables and cleansed the temple. He also told uh, the unflattering parable that compared the Pharisees to the wicked tenants in his father's vineyard. 
they were infuriated at him. And they set up a trap where they were certain he could not escape. And, though, and so they asked him a question that involved both politics and religion. Politics and religion. Now that's controversial to be sure. Maybe you've been at a family gathering for a holiday meal and, and the host, maybe it was you yourself, said, uh, we don't want to talk about politics tonight, please. Or let's not talk about theology. Let's just watch football. Let's have, let's just keep the peace. Well, you know, people have strong opinions about politics and about religion, which is why the question about taxes was the perfect trap. It would touch on both politics and religion. Verse 13 says, They sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus. Now, right away, we suspect something fishy because these two groups did not get along politically. The Pharisees were the conservative folks. They were popular with the grassroots. They were the teachers of the Jewish law. And they didn't like the Herodians because the Herodians were the elites They were in touch with the people in power, having privileged connections to Herod. Although they did not like each other, these two groups had one thing in common. Neither of the groups liked Jesus. The Pharisees knew that if Jesus said, you must pay your taxes to Caesar, then the people would be upset. They hated that yearly tax, and they hated the Romans. Judea was a vassal state under the Roman Empire, and if he says they ought to pay taxes to Caesar, then the people will turn against him, and then they can arrest him without an uproar. On the other hand, if Jesus told the people not to pay taxes. Then the Herodians would notify Herod, who was in cahoots with the Romans. And then the Romans would arrest Jesus. So here is a win-win situation for the enemies of Jesus. Either way he answers, he'll be in trouble. They have him trapped But Jesus is the master at springing traps. He can unravel the most difficult tangle. Maybe today you have a problem in your life you don't know how to solve. Maybe you have a difficult challenge and and you don't know how to settle it or solve it. You can't find the solution. Well, let me tell you, there is a master who can help you today. 
Jesus asked to see a denarius. Now, we know what one looks like. It's a Roman coin. On it is the picture of Tiberius Caesar. He was the emperor or the Caesar during Jesus' day. Imprinted on the coin was a slogan. It was in Latin. And it read, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And then on the back side, there was also an imprint, an engraving, also in Latin, Pontifex Maximus, which means highest priest. So you can see why the Jews hated the tax. They hated the coin itself. It is, a, it is a blasphemous coin. On one side, it says Caesar is the son of the divine Augustus, and on, on the other side, it says Caesar is the highest priest. In verse 16, Jesus asks, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Everybody knew it was Tiberius Caesar's. Then Jesus speaks out one of his most famous sentences. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This one sentence... This one sentence lays the foundation for the Christian's perspective on politics. And we have time today to note three implications concerning God and government found in this little pithy response. Here's the first. Be a good citizen. even if you think the government is bad. In a few days, Jesus would be killed by the Romans. A few years later, in A.D. 70, the Romans would come and they would destroy Jerusalem and the temple. After that, in the following years, they would kill some of the apostles and they would persecute Christianity. They were like any other empire, They did many good things for their citizens. They funded roads and bridges. They maintained a strong military for the defense. They subsidized health care and education. They did good things. But they also persecuted. And they insisted on worshiping the emperor. I think it's safe to say that no matter how frustrated you are with American politics and politicians, Rome was worse. Rome was worse. And yet Jesus said, pay your taxes. Caesar's face is on the coin, give him the coin. He has the right to levy taxes from his citizens, so pay the denarius. It is his due. Paul makes the same point. Paul also lived under that regime of Rome, and he made the same point in Romans 13 and verses 5 
through 7. He says, Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Be a good citizen. One time the IRS received a letter in the mail and included was a check for $1,500. The letter said, Dear Sirs, I cheated on my income tax. Here's the money. I haven't been able to sleep at night. P.S. If I'm still not able to sleep, I'll send you the rest. I'll bet his social security number uh, was of interest after that. Be a good citizen. Some Christians object to paying taxes because they know their money's supporting things that they don't agree with. But Jesus didn't use that logic. He said, your obligation is to pay the tax. You're not culpable for how the government chooses to spend your tax money. Now, the blessing of democracy where we live is that you do have a voice in how the country's money is spent. But Jesus' point is very simple. Be good citizens. Caesar has a tax. Pay the tax. Now, a second point we can, can derive out of that statement, a second point. Human government has legitimate authority. It's instituted by God. It's never perfect. Sometimes it's tragically imperfect. Far worse than democracy or monarchy is anarchy. And however frustrated you may be with government in any form, remember, government is God's idea. Listen again to Paul from Romans 13, starting at verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? 
Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Near our house lives a retired deputy sheriff. Through the years when he was off duty, he looked like a regular person. In the evening, he walked his dog. He mowed his lawn in his blue jeans. He's very friendly, and he will always give you a kind greeting. One day, I was driving downtown. I was on Alder Street, and I came upon an accident. And what do you know? As I got close, I saw my neighbor was on the scene, and he was in uniform next to his patrol car with the lights flashing. And at that moment, he was directing traffic. He was performing the ministry God had given to him. And as we submitted to his authority and went the direction he pointed, order and safety were preserved. In the New Testament, we are repeatedly told to pray for our rulers, to remember them in our prayers to God. To pray for their good is also to pray for our own good. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1, we can also hear these words. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. No matter how much you may disagree with what the government is doing, we ought to lead the way in showing respect to the governing officials. We should pray for them. Of course, we have the right to make our opinions known through the proper channels, we have ways we can voice our disagreements, and we can even do it strongly at times. But we must always give honor and respect to whom honor and respect are due because government is instituted by God. Now, Paul had written to Timothy that we should pray for the king. Now, when we pray for the king, what should we say in our prayers? What should we pray for? Did you realize there is a whole psalm that is a prayer for the king? Psalm 72. It's a sample prayer for the king. And we can hear earnest petitions being made on his behalf. In my Bible... 
The heading is called The Reign of the Righteous King. It begins in verse 1. Psalm 72, verse 1. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. Verse 4. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. Verse 6. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. Verse 12, for he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. And then verse 17, may his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Now, ultimately, this is a prayer for the Messiah King, the one who would rule in righteousness for all eternity. But then on the other hand, it was also a prayer for Solomon, the earthly king, that he would rule with justice and mercy and integrity and compassion and guard the vulnerable, protect the weak, So much rests upon a leader. A leader sets the tone for the whole nation. And we should pray this kind of prayer for our king, that he too would rule with wisdom and compassion and integrity and watch out for the vulnerable and protect the weak. Our prayers for our king should include these items. We learn that praying for the good of our king is to pray for our own good. To pray for the king is to pray for the good of our nation. That justice and integrity and prosperity would prevail in the land. So to pray for his good is to pray for our good. We come now to a final implication of Jesus' statement. Thirdly, government is legitimate, but limited. 
So far, we've been looking at the first half of Jesus' statement, which said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But now we go to the second half of his statement. Render to God the things that are God's. Up till now, you might think Jesus is siding with the Romans on everything. But look carefully. Jesus says that God and Caesar are not identical. Some things belong to Caesar. Other things belong to God. Of course, we love our country. We should obey in every respect. We obey the traffic laws. We stop at the red lights. We pay taxes. Right now, we're being asked to wear masks. But if the state asks from us something that truly belongs to God, we must obey God first. The state is not God. Caesar is not God. Augustus is not divine. Allegiance to God is ultimate. And the Bible gives us examples of how to proceed if earthly government goes over the line into God's domain. For instance, in Exodus chapter 1, we read that Pharaoh was concerned that the Israelites were becoming too numerous, and so he decreed that all the baby boys be thrown into the river. Well, the midwives refused. And that's how Moses' life was spared. In Acts 4, we read that the authorities told Peter and John to stop preaching about Jesus. But they would not stop because they were obeying a higher authority. And then in Acts 5, they were told again to stop preaching about Jesus. And that's when Peter came out with his famous line, we must obey God rather than man. In Daniel 2, Shadrach, Meshach, or Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chose to obey God rather than the king. And they refused to bow down to that image And then in Daniel 6, Daniel continued to pray to God even when it was illegal to pray to anyone other than the king. And he was thrown into the lion's den. We learn from these stories that the state is not God. Giving God his due must always be first if we're faced with the choice between God and human authority. Jesus wisely explained the limitation of government by asking his questioners, whose likeness is on that coin? The Greek word for likeness is icon. It sounds a lot like our English word, icon. It means image. And it's the very same word that's used in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our 
image, in our likeness. Coins bear the image of Caesar. People bear the image of God. Caesar gets our coins. Even the coins of today bear the image of our civil leaders. There's, there's Washington on our quarter. There's Jefferson on our nickels. There's Truman on our dimes. And there's Lincoln on our pennies. The government gets our coins. But God has a right to claim you as his due. Because your image resembles the image of God. God's image is on you. The way to render to God the things that are God's is to give God your very self. We give to the government our coins, but we give to God our lives. Are you holding anything back? If it's an offense to withhold taxes from the U.S. Treasury, what must it be to withhold what should be rendered to the one who made you from the king of the universe, the one whose image is stamped on you? You belong to him. You belong to him. Render to God the things that are God's. You're up to date with your taxes, I'm sure, but where are you spiritually? Today is the day to give him your all. Come to him. His grace is free. His gift to you has no price. There's no tax for his benefits. Isn't it wonderful? He gives us sunshine and air. No tax. It's all free. He gives you eternal life. What's the, what's the price? Only your heart. Only you. We truly do live in a wonderful country. We celebrate it today. We hear the brass music, and it's so appropriate. We're looking forward to the evening vespers. But let's remember that God is preparing for us another country, a heavenly country, where the king rules with perfect love, grace, integrity, and where prosperity abounds for all eternity. Praise God. And he's planning to take us there sometime soon, isn't he? Praise God. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Kind Father, we thank you for these words of Scripture which uh, help us as we live in this world. We want to be good citizens. We want to be honest and truthful in our taxes, in the way we live. We want to comply with 
the rules of society. We thank you for our country. We thank you for the freedoms we have. We thank you for the opportunities we enjoy and the peace and the freedom in our community. We pray for those who lead, those who are rulers over us at every level of government. We pray that they would rule wisely, carefully, with integrity, all for the benefit of we citizens, for us, for us who are citizens of this country. Now bless us as we enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you for your presence here in our midst, and we thank you for hearing our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.